this morning on promises for our problems. Promises for our problems. And we're going to come in at Acts 18. Acts 18 and verse 1. Acts 18 and verse 1. And here's the Word of God. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he, Paul, was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Amen. We landed there at verse 11 this morning. I wonder, have you ever reached the point in life where you've said the words, I quit? I quit. I can't do this anymore. I'm giving up. I had a friend. I met him at university, went on to be my, my best man, a very good friend. We, we, we're the sort of, maybe men are a wee bit different than women. You know, women need to talk to each other nearly every day or multiple times a day on the phone. Well, what are you at now? That's 9 o'clock, maybe 12 o'clock, phone each other. Well, what are you at now? Well, not much since it was at 9 o'clock, but that's the way women operate. I'm getting a few smiles. Some of the men are looking at me saying, that's very strange. Well, me and my friend that I went to uni with, he texts me, we text each other on and off throughout the year, but every year in between Christmas and New Year, me and him meet up for a feed. And that's the only time we really meet up during the year. And some women can't understand this. And we just pick up where we left off and we keep going. That's the way we operate. That's the way men operate. But anyway, I want to ask you this. Maybe you've been on the road for a long time with the Lord and you're serving him in some capacity here or some other place and really you've got yourself into a state of spiritual, as it were, depression. You don't really see any progress in the work that you're involved with. Uh, you don't really know where it's going to head. You wonder, is there any point to it all? And you find yourself on the verge of quitting. You find yourself on the verge of giving up. And I would say in Northern Ireland today and in our circles, whatever way you want to define those, I would say there's a lot of believers just like that. And now, you're not going to come to me at the door with a, a letter and say, there's my membership, I've quit the church, I'm quitting the faith, I'm walking away from it altogether. But rather, we check out mentally, and we'll still turn up on a Sunday, and we'll still turn up at the right places, we'll sing the right hymns, we'll dress right, we'll do all the right things. But spiritually speaking, 
We've checked out long ago. We've gave up long ago. And you might feel that the times in which we live are virtually impossible to do anything for Christ, and the society around about us seems to be getting darker and darker, and it seems to be getting worse and worse, and there just doesn't seem to be the same move of God that there used to be years ago. And you can hearken back, and you can talk back about times and missions and different things that you were involved with, and many people got saved at them. And now it seems if, if there's anybody saved at all at missions, it's maybe one or two here and there, and just things just seem to be really dark and really desperate and really depressing. And you're getting to that point where you think, you know what, I think I just quit. But I want to encourage you this morning to know that, I want you to know this this morning, that some of the greatest characters on your pages of Scripture felt exactly like that. Some of the greatest characters that you know about and love and read about and study have got to that point in their life where they wanted to throw in the towel, where they wanted to quit. And I believe as we study uh, this passage this morning and as we look at this carefully, we will see a man, Paul, who was, as it were, on the verge of quitting. And he needed those great promises from the Lord in verses 9 and 10 that we looked at this morning. You see, there's three things that Paul was suffering from just at this particular stage. Now, bear in mind, where are we with Paul? He's nearly at the end of his second missionary journey. Many different places he has traveled to. And he didn't travel like you all traveled here today in a, a nice, comfortable car. But Paul had to go a lot of the way, either on foot or he had to travel on other occasions by boat and all sorts of other ways. It wasn't easy to get around, and yet Paul covered an awful lot of ground. See, I believe Paul was suffering from, firstly, fatigue. He also suffered from failure, and he had an element of frustration. If you come over to 1 Corinthians uh, and chapter 2, verse 3, just to get an idea, because of course it says there in verse 1 of 18 that we read, he's now come to Corinth. And uh, Corinth is a, a very interesting study, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 3, we read this. Paul's saying this, and I was with you uh, in there in Corinth, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul came to these Corinthians, and he was weak, he was in fear, and he was trembling. And he was at a point of despair and depression even in his own ministry. Paul gives us that little glimpse behind the scenes of what it was like for him, what was going on in his heart and life at that particular time. And friends, have we all not been there at one point or the other? I mean, you might even be there this morning. You might be in a place of fatigue this morning. You might be tired this morning. You might have had a difficult week. You might have had a difficult month. You might have had a difficult start to the year. There's many reasons why Paul was maybe just about ready to quit on this occasion, and fatigue was maybe one of them. Remember in the earlier verses, we uh, discover that Paul was not only uh, preaching the gospel there in Acts 18 and verse 3 and 4, but we also read that he was working. He was, uh, it says there in verse uh, 3, and wrought, or that can be translated worked. He was working as a tent maker to support himself. And then in the evenings, he was going out and preaching the gospel. He was doing a double job, as we would say. Some have said, that the spirit, soul, and body live so close together that they catch one another's diseases. I thought that was very true. You see, whenever your body is tired, when you're physically tired, when you're fatigued, it's very difficult for your emotions to stay positive and to stay up and to stay strong. It's very hard then, if you're physically tired and you're emotionally tired, then it's going to have an impact upon the spiritual. 
And so spiritually, you might be fatigued this morning, and I think Paul was at that point maybe in his life as he came here in Acts 18, and he was maybe on the verge of saying, I'm going to give up. He was not only suffering from fatigue, but there was failure as well. You know, many of God's saints or many great characters of Scripture, even if you read some of the great biographies of heroes of the faith, they consider themselves and their ministries to be failures. You know, Paul had journeyed from Athens to Corinth, approximately 50 miles on foot, and he was maybe thinking back of his time there in Athens with all the idolatry. And remember, they called him a babbler or a seed picker or a a bird brain. Not a very nice thing to call the the pastor, is it? If you're going to call me a bird brain, make sure you do it at home where no one else can hear you, only the Lord, and he'll remind you of it someday. But listen, the results, or the insults rather, They might have been fairly trivial to Paul, but maybe in a greater sense, the lack of spiritual success maybe impacted on Paul. See, I think Paul was an ambitious believer. Nothing wrong with being ambitious, especially for the Lord. And I think Paul wanted to see the Lord move and save many, many, everyone that he came into contact with. And of course, as we have read, as we have come through Acts, God didn't work that way. Not everybody got saved that Paul preached the gospel to. Remember last week, some mocked, some waited, some took on the word of God. And Paul was maybe uh, had a sense of failure. He had that sense that things really aren't going the way I could, and my ministry isn't really that effective for the Lord. And maybe that's you this morning. Well, there was fatigue, there was failure, but then there was frustration. Look at verse uh, 6 of chapter 18, and we'll, we'll come to this again. But remember where Paul is at here. He's in Corinth, and then in verse 6, we see great frustration because as Paul was seeking to present the gospel, what happened? They opposed themselves. They blasphemed. Then Paul shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own hands. I am clean. From henceforth, I will go unto the Gentiles. Now, that doesn't mean that from this point on, Paul didn't witness to the Jews for all time, and it was just a focus on the Gentiles. But here in Corinth, he chose to focus on the Gentiles. Paul had a background here of fatigue, failure, and frustration. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're fatigued. Maybe you feel that you're a failure. Maybe there's an element of frustration in your life this morning. What has God to say to us? Well, I want you to see, first of all here, the people in Corinth. Look at chapter 18 again in the first three verses. And these things, after these things, rather, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. Corinth or the Corinthian believers. Wow, what a place of absolute carnality. It would have been a population of approximately 700,000. Now, Athens was full of idols. Corinth was full of immorality. It was notorious for it. One commentator described it as the vanity fair of the ancient world, a city dedicated to sport, entertainment, and perversion. Isn't it amazing how things haven't really changed even today? For that's really what this world is all built upon. It's a world built upon sport, about being entertained or amused, and all manner of perversion. The atmosphere would have been full and charged with wealth and indulgence and a culture of pleasure and of vice. It was a very desperate idea. Come back to first, or go forward rather, to First Corinthians chapter 6 this time. I want you to try and get an idea or a sense of the people that Paul was dealing with here. First uh, Corinthians 6 and verse uh, 9 through 11, just to see this. And Paul's speaking now to believers here in, in this part of Scripture, but he says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Now be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor idolaters rather, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, uh, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Let's just pause there. That uh, typifies or characterizes all the different people that Paul was running into in Corinth. Uh, a wonderful bunch of people, as we can read. And then there's this beautiful verse in verse 11. I think I've shared this at the table one time. I love this. But look at this. Verse 11. And such were, previous tense, some of you. Isn't that lovely? He's now speaking to the believers, and uh, they were all caught up in all manner of things. Such were some of you. Look at this. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Wonderful contrast between the old and the new. But does that not feed into the, uh, the emotions and the feelings that Paul must have been dealing with? Those feelings of fatigue, of failure, of frustration. How on earth can I witness? How on earth can I share the gospel with, with people like this? All, all these people in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and that list of people, these are tough, hard cases. How am I going to get through to them? Well, Paul was going to get through with the Lord's help. And let me tell you this, that list of, of different types of sinners that we have read there, you could find that type on that list everywhere within our wee country. And I would even dare to say even within our own wee town, you could find every example on that list. But they, whenever they're exposed to the gospel, they could say, just like, the, like Paul was able to say in verse 11, such were some of you, but ye are washed. And that's our prayer. Look at verse 2 very quickly this morning. There's not only the population that Paul dealt with, but there was the people uh, on a more personal level. We find a few characters here that he dealt with. And he stayed in their home, Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And he stayed with them. Look at verse 3. He abode with them, or he stayed, or he lived with them, and he worked for their occupation. They were tent makers. In just the same way that the Lord Jesus Christ had a trade, he was a carpenter, uh, all in that persuasion, that Jewish persuasion, had to learn a trade. And Paul had the trade of tent making. He was able to look after himself when it came to that regard. And so he was able to support him, himself at this particular stage of the journey. So there were the people in Corinth. And then secondly, I want you to see very quickly the preaching in Corinth. Look at verses 4 through 8 this morning. I want you to see here, even though Paul was working uh, during the day and he was laboring at night, look at verse 4. And, as, and this is Paul's pattern and his custom, is it not? For each time he would uh, go to the synagogue every Sabbath and he persuaded or he tried to convince or reason with the Jews and the Greeks. I want you to see there consistency and faithfulness. Even though Paul was busy, even though he was tired, he always carved out time to witness. He always carved out time to try and be faithful and have that faithfulness. He was working and witness, witnessing. He, he was making tents by day and making converts by night. He was faithful. But then there was a lovely bit of fellowship. For Look at verse 5. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. That word pressed there could be translated arrested, or it so encouraged them to that point. Silas and Timotheus, they were uh, following on behind after Paul, and now they'd caught up, and I'm sure it was a lovely moment of fellowship that they were back together again. But there wasn't just faithfulness or fellowship, but I want you to see frustration. 
Uh, look at verse 6. Remembering all that fatigue that we talked about in the introduction, you think of all the frustration of the city of Corinth with all its darkness and its evil. You think about all these things. And now look at this frustration here in verse 6. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he, that's Paul, shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. Paul faced many difficulties, as we will see maybe next week in verse 12 through 13 and 14. There came upon Paul a sense of organized opposition. They really came after Paul. It wasn't just that they rejected the message and told Paul to clear off, but they set about coming after him. I want you to see, do you see the picture starting to emerge here for Paul? Is it any wonder that the Lord had to intervene in verses 9 and 10 with his vision in the night? And Paul's up against a carnal country. He's up against carnal characters. He's up against uh, opposition. He's up against uh, contrary characters, and not just those who mocked the gospel, but those who actively tried to target him and to shut him down. See that little phrase, blasphemed, there in verse 6? In other parts, and we've been thinking in Revelation, it's actually translated slander, but here it's translated slightly differently. But friend, isn't it so difficult to hear people taking the Lord's name in vain? Isn't it difficult in the workplace or wherever it is that God has placed you? You, you can hardly uh, listen to any TV program or anything on the radio at all where you hear the Lord's name being taken in vain nowadays. But isn't it so difficult whenever you hear that name which is above all other names, that name that means so much to us, isn't it hard to hear that name just being thrown about and taken in vain and mocked? Well, something was said to Paul, and it must have really got to him because he, he shook his raiment, and he said, in other words, I'm having nothing more to do with you, and I'm just going to go on to the Gentiles. You've had your opportunity. You've had your chance. But in the midst of this, there was an element of fruit, because look at verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> and he departed thence. And entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. That's just another wee way of saying next door to the synagogue. And, and Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So in the midst of all this, there was wonderful opportunity in, in verse 7. There was wonderful opportunity. He got to go to this man, Justice, and he got to share the gospel. And then in verse 8, we read that Crispus, there was an element of obedience because he believed the gospel. He, was, he heard the gospel. He believed on the Lord with all his house. And then there was many other Corinthians. They heard, they believed, and they were baptized. just want to remind you of the order here when it comes to this. You hear the gospel. You believe the gospel. And then you obey the outworking of the gospel in believers' baptism. I was listening to Willie Mullen uh, this week and on a certain sermon, and he came off with this line, and I thought I would share it with you. It's just as relevant today as it was in 1963 when he preached it. You don't get baptized expecting to be saved eventually. You get baptized because you were saved previously. And I think that's a good way of putting it. There's many people today, and they think salvation... And baptism are intertwined in terms of uh, gaining salvation or maintaining your salvation. That's not what it's all about. You get baptized because you were saved. It's an, an, inward, or it's an outward expression of an inward change. You're showing the world that I have been saved. I have been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm showing the world that I am saved and I've been made different. I've been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about the order in Scripture. In fact, you think about the order in Acts alone. 
What has happened each and every time people hear the word? You think of the, the eunuch with Philip on the chariot. He heard the word. He was already reading the word, but Philip came to him, explained the word. He heard the word of God. He believed the word of God, and then he obeyed the Lord in believers' baptism. Think of the Philippian jailer just a few chapters previous. Well, it's the same story there. He heard the word, he believed the word, and then he obeyed the word, and he got wonderfully saved in all his house. Did you notice as well there in verse 9, or verse 8 rather, uh, Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. It was with all his house. There was a wonderful uh, many revival even within that household there. So there was the people in Corinth, there was the preaching in Corinth, and now we want to consider very simply this morning the great promise that came in Corinth to Paul. Look at verses 9 through 10. So think about the backdrop. There's fatigue physically, maybe emotionally, spiritually. Paul is tired. He's done out. We consider maybe, or we think Paul believes maybe he has in his ministry been a bit of a failure. He hasn't accomplished what he would love to have accomplished for the Lord. You consider the frustration when he's trying to witness to, as it were, his own kind, when he's trying to witness to the Jews and how they blasphemed and how they're going to now come against him. You consider all that fatigue, the frustration and the failure, and now you get to this point, and I don't think it's a strange thing at all that in verse 9, the Lord had to pay Paul a wee visit in the night. Do you know in the pages of Scripture, there's hardly a character, those great heroes of the Scripture that we think about, there's hardly a character in Scripture where the Lord hasn't had to come alongside them at some point in their life and put, as it were, His arm around them and give them a wee bit of a comfort. Do you know that? All the greats of Scripture, all the way back through to Genesis and Abraham, all the way through, the Lord sometimes has to come alongside. There's an old hymn that says, just when we need him, Jesus is near. Just when we falter, just when we fear, just when I need him most, just when I need him most, Jesus is near to comfort and cheer, just when I need him the most. Is that not the case? I want you to see here, first of all, in verse 9, there is the promise of God's presence. Look at verse 9 with me and notice, first of all, the source of this. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. You see, God still speaks like this when you use your vision to read his word. That's how he speaks to you, through his precious word. There's a wonderful source here. This comes from the Lord. These great promises that we're going to look at, this isn't coming from me. This isn't coming from some other believer, but this is coming from the Lord. Look at verse 9 again. What was the saying? Be not afraid. Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. Now, we're going to get a wee bit technical this morning, and I loved English. I didn't like maths, although I've, I've, I've found I can love maths now that I've figured out how to turn the calculator on. But in the English, or in the original here, that, this, this little expression, be not afraid, it's what's called a present imperative. And whenever there's that present imperative, with all those negatives that are around it, did you notice the negatives? Don't be afraid, but speak. Don't hold your peace, because I am with thee, and no man, verse 10, no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. I have many people in this city. Whenever it's surrounded by those things, those negatives around about it, the way that sentence is composed, that's an indication to us that Paul, even the great, the mighty Paul, was experiencing fear, and he was experiencing worry about the situation that he was in. You don't have to put up your hand this morning, but anybody here in a fearful situation, 
Anybody here fearful about the situation that you face tomorrow or the rest of the week, or indeed the rest of the week, you're not alone, for Paul was here, and the Lord had a special word for Paul, and you can claim it for yourself. The Lord spoke to Paul in the vision and basically said to Paul, stop being afraid, don't be afraid anymore, because I am with thee. Friend, is that not just like the Lord? You study the Lord. You study the life of the Lord in any great detail, and what does it come time and time again? How many times did the Lord say, it is I, be of good cheer, don't be afraid? That's the character of Christ. He spoke to Paul directly. He spoke directly to Paul's fear, and he says, Paul, don't be afraid, but speak. See, there's the source here. Then there's the saying, but then there's the speaking. Did you see it? He says here, speak, don't hold back, don't hold your peace. That's another uh, present imperative, which just simply means you could translate it this way. Um, keep on talking and never give up. Keep on witnessing, Paul. Keep on spreading the gospel. Don't worry about the blasphemers. Don't worry about the opposition. Don't worry about all the negativity. Keep preaching the word. Keep sharing the gospel. Don't hold it back. Many times, Many times, how many times have I not spoken up for the Lord when I should have in the workplace? How many times have you maybe just slid back into the corner whenever the talk isn't that great in the office or the factory or wherever it is that God has you? How many times we don't speak out for the Lord? Paul was receiving a directive straight from heaven, and it was simply this, keep on talking, keep on speaking, keep on witnessing to the Lord. I mentioned this on Wednesday night at the prayer meeting, but it bears repeating for, for those of you who weren't there. It says in Second Corinthians 4, you'll know these words well, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Friend, I want to ask you something this morning. You maybe have people who are on your prayer list on your to be saved list. And friend, for whatever reason, they're not going to come in here to church. That battle, you've tried to fight that battle, and they're just not going to come into this church or some other church. They'll not even come into a mission like we had in the school or some other place. They're just not going to come into church. And you wonder, what am I going to do? Well, friend, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do because God has you in their life for a very specific reason and a specific purpose. He is instructing you this morning, do not be afraid, but speak, hold not your peace. Speak up for Christ. Witness to them for Christ. If they're not going to come in here to hear me or somebody else preach the word, you're going to have to preach it to them. You're going to have to speak it to them. Don't be afraid. Don't hold back, but speak up and speak out for Christ. Look again at verse 10. As we continue on, there's another beautiful little idea here, the promise of God's presence. I am with thee. Is that not a wonderful, wonderful promise and truth? Hebrews 13.5, and I think a brother prayed this in the prayer meeting this morning, and it gave me a great thrill. It says at the end of Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. How many of you have claimed and are clinging to that great truth this morning? Pastor Jerry Vines tells the story of a young preacher. He was a ministerial student, 
He was going through Bible college and he had a couple of Greek lectures that week and he was very aware of how this was in the Greek, uh, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So he was out visiting one of the older saints of God and his congregation and he, he wanted to try and encourage her and he wanted to maybe impress her a wee bit at the same time and let her know what he was learning in Bible college. So he shared with her the great promise of Hebrews 13, 5. He said, let me tell you, dear, God will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He said, sister, I want you to know that in the original Greek, that means that God is saying, I will never, no, never, no, never leave thee nor forsake thee. That's the literal translation, three times. And she just turned, as older ladies can do, and she just turned to the young preacher and she said, well, young man, the Lord might have to say it three times for you Greek scholars, but once is enough for me. Isn't that wonderful? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That's a promise that applies to each and every one of us here as a child of God. Do you know that God has promised you and I his presence in the life of every single believer? Paul himself in 2 Timothy 4, 16 tells us he knew what it was like to be abandoned even by friends. Tells us in 2 Timothy 4, 16, at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. And I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. That was part of Paul's final letter to Timothy. He was reflecting on his own experience in life. It was sort of uh, biographical, if you like, and he was looking back at God's goodness and faithfulness, but it was recognizing that sometimes men, good men, had maybe let him down. But friend, whenever you're with the Lord and if you're saved here today, you have a wonderful promise. You have a great truth that God will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul knew that the Lord had stood by him and provided him with great strength. Friend, even if your closest friend, even if your closest ally turns their back on you, Jesus Christ will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. Your friends may forget you. You may be outliving everyone else in your family. You may feel very alone. You may be the only one saved in your family, in your workplace, wherever it is that God has placed you. But friend, you might be left with nothing, but I want you to get this into your heart this morning. If you're in Christ, you have that friend that sticketh closer than a brother. You are indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit, and you can never and you will never, ever be alone again. It's a wonderful thought. See, the old devil will try to tell you that you're alone and that you're abandoned, but not with Christ. The old enemy will try and tell you that there's nobody there to help you. There's nobody there to get you out of a difficult situation and that you're all alone and even God has abandoned you and you're fit for nothing and you're no use to anybody. That's not the case. Heard the story of an old farmer and Benny, the shire horse. Everybody know what a shire horse is. I think that's a big horse. That's the level of my knowledge of horses. But Benny was walking down the road with the farmer, and the farmer was walking down the road with Benny. And it was a bit like a couple of days recently. It was a wee bit frosty, and he came across a driver who hadn't driven too well, and he'd driven into the ditch in the car. And the driver got out of the car and said to the farmer, do you think that horse would be capable of giving me a pull out of this ditch? The farmer says, ah, no problem at all. We'd get the tow rope out, got the tow rope onto the car and onto the horse. And uh, the farmer says, right, Fred, pull. And the horse never moved. The farmer says, right, Nettie, pull. The horse never moved. Maggie, pull. The horse never moved. Right, Benny, pull. And the horse just pulled the whole car right up out of the ditch. The driver was delighted, but he was a wee bit confused. And he got out of the car and he says, thanks very much to the farmer. But why did you call them all the wrong names? He says, well, the farmer says, well, to tell you the truth, Benny's blind. And if he thought he was pulling on his own, he wouldn't have bothered at all. 
friend, is that not the case as believers? Sometimes the old enemy gets into our minds and into our heads and he makes us feel that we're all alone and there's nobody else with us and there's nobody else there to help us. Nothing could be farther from the truth. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He's always, always with us. Some of you are maybe on your own and you're trying to do something for the Lord. Friend, don't you worry about it. The Holy Spirit will enable you. He will empower you. He will energize you to do that which he has for you. You see, in your sorrow, he is with thee. In your success, he's saying, I am with thee. In your life, I am with thee. And praise God, even in death, I am with thee. But then there's something else here in verse 10. There's the promise of, of God's protection. Look at verse 10 this morning. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. Now look closely at that text again. What does it say? No man shall set on thee to hurt thee. It doesn't say that uh, no man shall set on thee at all. For Paul had received many a, a hiding. He got many a beating. And he'd probably go on to get a few more before we get through the book of Acts. That would have been untrue. Paul did go through an awful lot of physical abuse. But the, so the Lord didn't say that I'm not going to let any man set on you at all. But he simply said, no man's going to set on thee to the point to hurt thee. The Lord was promising his promise of divine protection. Now, I believe that the saint or the child of God is immortal until God gets through with him. See, I want you to know that the power of death and, and life, the power of life and death, rather, is not in the hands of this world, but it's now in the hands of our resurrected Lord, who has the keys of death, hell, and the grave hanging down from his girdle. He's the one that says, whenever your time's up. He's the one that knows whenever your life is through on this earth. And friend, if you're in the will of God, and you're doing the will of God, and you're doing what God has for you to do, if God has something for you to do, friend, you are, as it were, immortal. And all the devils of hell, all the schemes of man cannot get at you, cannot harm you, cannot rattle you to the point of taking your life, if that's what God wants you to do. You see, we're well cared for people as the people of God. He's protecting us. He's guiding us. Around about us are those everlasting arms. Ahead of us, he is our guide. And behind us, he's our guard. We're well protected in the will of God. We've the promise of God's presence. We've the, the promise of God's protection. Friend, what on earth could we be afraid of even today? But then look at 10 and 11, for there's something else here, because there's the promise of God's potential. Did you see it? For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And, and he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Why would Paul, or why would the Lord appear to Paul in a vision at this particular time? Remember our initial picture. Paul was maybe worn out. He was fed up. He was maybe frustrated. The Lord has appeared here in verse 9 in this vision. He's spoken to Paul. He's uh, confirmed again, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid. Don't hold your peace. Look at verse 10. The Lord said to Paul, remember, I'm with you. No man's going to set on you to the point of hurting you or harming you to such an extent that you'll not have your life. And here's the reason for all this. Remember, Paul, when it comes to Corinth, it's full of bad rascals. It's full of tough cases. But look at the end of verse 10. Here's why you're here, Paul. Here's why I want you to preach. For I have much people in this city. 
In other words, there's an awful lot of potential amongst this carnality. And Paul, you're the man that I want to go and preach the gospel to these Gentiles. We look out today in Kilray or wherever it is that you're from, we look out and we see sinners. God sees souls. We look out and we see problem people. God sees people with potential. We look out and we see addictions of every type and kind, unbreakable chains. God's Word tells us, he who the Son has set free is free indeed. You see, we look out and we see a life ruined. God sees a new creation in Christ. Bill Gaither got it right again when he wrote, heartaches, broken pieces, ruined lives are why you died on Calvary. Your touch was what I longed for. You have given life to me. The Lord reminded Paul, I have much people in this city. What he's saying here, Paul, you don't see Corinth the way I see Corinth. Let's bring it locally. God's saying to us, or the Lord's saying to you and me today, you don't see Kilray the way I see Kilray, or wherever it is that you're from. Paul would have walked through that terrible, awful city of Corinth. He would have saw all the, the terrible things going on around about them. He would have looked at all the people around about them. Everywhere he went, he would have saw a corrupt, a wicked, a terrible society. He saw people who were bound up in sin. But God saw something that Paul didn't see, because underneath all that sin, underneath all that uh, debauchery, all underneath all of that, Paul or God saw people with hungry hearts. I'm going to tell you something about people with addictions. People with addictions are searching for something. They're searching for something to satisfy them, something to give them that, that contentment or satisfaction in their life, and unfortunately, they've looked for it in the wrong place. But they're searching for something, something that you and I have, Christ. That's what they're searching for. God saw people looking for something they didn't have within their hearts. The Lord saying to Paul, I know something about these people that you don't know. And remember, God is not willing that any should perish. Paul, I know you're tired. I know you're frustrated. I know you feel like you're a failure, but come on, get up. Don't be afraid. Speak out for me. I am going to be with you. I have a job for you to do. The least likely person could be the next convert in this town. Did you know that? The person that we maybe feel could never be saved, could never be saved, it could be the next person through the doors and saved here. We don't know. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Sunday school teachers, don't give up on every little name on your Sunday school role. Good news club leaders, you might look out amongst all the people that come in and the families that they go back to, and you might wonder, are they listening at all? Is the word going in? Don't give up. You could be shocked. They could be the next ones to get saved. Uh, fellow gospel preachers, you maybe feel like you're preaching to the choir, and you even wonder, is anybody uh, saved? I, I want to correct myself at this point. At the AGM, I made a, an awful blooper. I said in my chairman's remarks, I can share this. It's not confidential. Maybe some of you caught this. I was reminded when I went home. I got up and I said, as we preached the gospel on, a, on the, the Lord's Day, I look out and I wonder, is anybody saved at all? And what I meant to say was, I, I look out and I wonder, is there any unsaved in at all? That's what I meant to say, but 
the moment got to me, but you knew where I was at. See, none of you even caught that, did you? Ah, yeah, you weren't even listening. Friends, let me tell you, gospel preachers, those of you who take the gospel out in different places on Sunday nights and either to the nursing home there in Resharkin and other places, and you wonder, is anybody really listening? Is there any unsaved coming in on Sunday nights, friend? Let me tell you, I have messages and emails on my phone to prove it. You do not realize who is listening online and where they're coming from and where they're listening in from. Friend, let's bring it local here to Kilray. There is so much potential in our town. I don't know how many people have walked past here since we started preaching this morning, but each and every one of them is important to God. Christ died for each and every person, each and every person that's walked past that, that wall. What potential there is. There's no town too hard for the gospel. There's no individual too hard for the gospel. And friend, I believe this, that if every single believer here took up the challenge of God, if we got down on our knees, if we prayed, if we pleaded with God, and if we brought in the sinners, we would see revival in Kilray. Some of us dead Baptists were that asleep. We haven't woke up to the reality that there's people walking past our front door here at the church, and they're walking past, and they're lost, and they're going to hell. They're going to hell if they don't get right with God. There's some in your families are going to a lost eternity. We need to wake up. We need to pray. We need to bring them in, either here or some other place. You get them out here on a Sunday night. I don't promise a great sermon, but I'll promise you this. I'll preach it simple, and I'll preach it straight. You have to be born again. What a mighty thing it would be if God was to visit this town. Is there anything too hard for thee? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? No. God wants to save precious souls in Kilray if we would only get it. You see, I believe Paul got this instruction from the Lord just when he was at his most tired, when he was at his most low, whenever he was most frustrated, whatever his condition, and maybe you're just like that today. You feel like you're running on empty. The fuel light, the warning light has been on for a long time. You say, I'm not going to make it. I can't do it anymore. I, I can't reach out to bring sinners in. I've tried that. They won't come in. I'm too shy. I don't have the words. Remember what the Lord reminded Paul with here. He gave him a promise of his presence. Not the presence of, of uh, Silas and Timotheus. That was a great encouragement to Paul. But not the presence of human beings. But God's presence. That's what Paul was given. The promise of God's protect, or presence. He was also given the, the promise of God's protection. The Lord didn't supply Paul with a couple of well-armed bodyguards to follow him around and make sure that nobody touched him. Didn't pay protection money to the right lads in the town to make sure Paul was left alone. Nothing like that. He was given God's protection. And then he was given a wonderful promise. Was Paul not given? I have much people. I have many people in this city that need to be saved. Paul was given the reminder of God's potential. I've already mentioned it. God's not willing that any should perish. And friend, let me tell you this. God is offering the same thing to you today. He's offering the promise of his presence, the promise of his protection, and you have the great promise of his potential. Friend, be encouraged today. God wants to use you. Don't be afraid. Speak up. Speak out. Don't hold back. Remember, God is with you, and no one's going to set on you to harm you. Why? Because God has people that need to be saved 
And maybe you are going to be that link in the chain. Maybe you are going to be the one to bring them in here. Or maybe you're going to be the one to share the gospel with them. May God write his word upon our hearts. Let's just pray before we sing our closing hymn this morning.